In a world of art and entertainment, we often seek deeper meaning and overanalyze the presentation. Director Paul Verhoeven often uses B-movie genre as a vehicle for complex human emotions, social satire, and shocking sex and violence. Is this genius subtext for the artist's intent, or our own imagination looking for cosmic connection where none were intended? We call, we this, call dilemma this dilemma the Verhoeven, the Verhoeven Effect. Effect. Hello and welcome to the Verhoeven Effect Podcast. This is Conlon. And this is Nathan. Once again, as a primer, we are going through network television shows that we don't watch to discover what millions of people watch on a daily basis to see what do they get out of these television shows. Uh, We are watching three vague, I guess they are police procedural dramas, mostly CBS. Yeah. I mean, there's only three, but two of them are CBS and most of these are like CSI was CBS, NCIS is CBS, The Mentalist was CBS. What else? Like they just like they're just oh yeah, Hawaii Five O is CBS. Like they're just they're just lousy with police procedurals. Yes, they found their reality TV in <laughs> procedurals, and then of course we yeah. have the eighties. Yeah, yeah, good thing. I I much appreciate an average police procedural over any any uh reality tv show <laughs> yeah oh yeah that's it's i will not watch those i mean i do but it was like axemen uh american I, chopper I, yeah american chopper just because it's like uh, these people do they genuinely hate each other and it, as it turned out yes <laughs> um you didn't know it was like is this just for the show but so so you know and like the for every you know like uh pawn stars so we are not immune to the the gravity of reality tv shows but we in general we don't acknowledge them as art so that might be a, a setup for a later season yeah. is try to find art and reality tv shows well and you can't forget forged in fire which is technically oh, a yeah, reality yeah. competition show but there's not a lot of drama like <laughs> i mean there is i guess behind the scenes but not not out front yeah. and it's stuff that i like it's like i will watch people do that because it's cool yeah that's almost a separate thing is like it's like a competition that they turn into a reality tv well actually i guess that's all of them because like survivor is kind of the first one to do that and technically it was a competition tv show but what people got into was all the the drama the personal stuff yeah because i i remember like top shot like what would just be a cool competition like american gladiators but with real guns but like half that show was just drama yeah and if a fabricator or not, it was just that's what they edited into the show. So, yeah, Forge and Fire, very little drama except like the when somebody when something goes wrong with a knife and you know this guy's like skilled, but because of the time constraints, it's like oh his villa has split and he's got to start <laughs> over and he's got forty five minutes to produce a knife, and, but no one's like getting in each other's face. <laughs> you know, it's it's pretty even keel. So. But yes, it is technically reality TV. So tonight, for tonight's show, <laughs> yeah. we watched the uh, second second episode of all the first seasons of yep. NCIS New Orleans, uh, The Mentalist, and Miami Vice. Uh, and I will say, uh, NCIS New Orleans sort of redeemed itself in this one. It was a lot more yeah. engaging to me. Yeah. Because this one is entitled Carrier. No, it doesn't take place on an aircraft carrier, which is what I initially thought. This one is uh, the 
bubonic plague reared its ugly head. Uh, season one, episode two, Carrier. Original air date, September 30th, 2014 on CBS on Tuesday. Um, which I added that in because when they show is what day a show is on kind of tells like what kind of show is, which uh, there'll be a surprise later on. Uh, we'll explain. Uh, here's the episode description, which uh, I'll just read. NCIS Special Agent Tony Denozo assists the New Orleans team when a Navy lieutenant on Liberty dies of the bubonic plague. The team races to locate all additional sailors on Liberty, control a potential outbreak, and determine the source of the highly infectious disease. We have showrunner Gary Glasberg. This episode is also written by Gary Glasberg. Uh, Jason I. Kidd and Sonia Winton. Uh, so those two, I think they're, they are... Um, One's like a script supervisor and one's kind of like just a, uh, a script writer. But uh, what I've learned from the audio commentaries for the Battlestar Galactica TV show mm-hmm. <laughs> that was on sci-fi, Ronald Moore, is that it? Yes. Ronald D. Moore uh, or something like that. Yeah, Ronald D. Moore. Um, he has fantastic, like all basically all I know about like television production are from these audio commentary. He has fantastic breakdowns of like how a television show is made now it might be different um how because he is a producer and a writer it might be different how his productions are run compared to other tv shows so i'm using this as a general basis for things he came out of star trek which was crazy um they did 26 episode seasons and uh they're expensive shows and they were uh what do you call that uh syndicated yeah (laughs) And so a lot of times you have what's called a writer's room where a TV show will just have a bunch of writers and they'll kind of go out on and have like, um, they'll just have like a convention where everybody gets together and they start to break down the season where everybody just puts out ideas and then they kind of break down like what idea for each episode. And then those ideas for episodes are then split up amongst the writer team. So even though somebody might write an episode, the core idea for the episode might come from somebody else. So every episode is kind of written by the team, but somebody has to get the credit for it because they work in Hollywood and they have, uh, you know, unions and stuff. So yeah. people need to get money. People need those credits. writer guild credits. Yeah. <laughs> so that's based. So sometimes when we list these writers, it's, it's not necessarily like, like maybe the most genius thing about that episode doesn't need to be given credit to the, to, to the writer is listed, but we cannot determine that we cannot, that that is uh, behind the door stuff. So uh, directed by James uh, Whitmore jr. Um, also an interesting thing. I, I, I didn't mention last time. This is another thing I learned from Ronald Dean Moore. It's, it's very, it's very important who directs the very first episode of a, t- of a TV show. Cause they kind of set like, at, like the mood, the kind of look of the show um, because like directors on, on TV shows, they're not seen as like directors for movies. They're not like auteurs. They're kind of just like management people. It's like, all right, let's hurry this up. Like they kind of know what they're looking for. But if you direct the first episode of a television series, like basically that director will get paid for every show produced henceforth. Good deal. <laughs> um, just like, like, like why Ke- Ridley Scott directed some episodes of, of yeah. something. And okay. I like Bobcat Goldway is probably swimming in money because basically any comedy television show made, he usually direct, he directs the pilot. Yes. 
because uh, he is a very good director and prolific amongst uh, TV comedy stuff. So, so back to NCIS. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, directed by Jay. Okay, yeah. Now, now we get into the the analysis of the show, or we just tell so. So let's just say uh, they're they're in a uh, a club, and because it's in New Orleans, it's not just like a rock band. It's it's a brass band on stage, and everybody's rocking out anyways. Yeah, because it's it's New Orleans, and then there is a a sailor on leave, so he's just a dude with kind of a buzz cut uh, in civilian clothes, and he doesn't feel very well. Uh, he's kind of woozy. He walks outside. He is hit by a taxi and a very well done stunt because that looked like that hurt. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then we cut to the credits. Now, one thing I was going to mention about because I listened to the episode description and it kind of takes something away from this episode because, but also like if you saw like, you know, next week on NCIS New Orleans, you probably would know this anyways, but it's like a good halfway through the episode that you have no idea. It's going to be like a, a plague episode or a yeah. pandemic episode. Like that's, you kind of, that gets lost. So you have to think of it, but you kind of have to think about like, that was the mystery that's being built to. It's like you, nobody knows what it is to about halfway through the episode. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, you know, cause it's like uh, when I was watching this, like, oh, are they using the bubonic plague? Is this, is this like a metaphor against imperialism and <laughs> sending our Navy to other countries? And the fact that the ship's named the Geronimo is even stranger when you realize <laughs> who Geronimo was. Um, so that, that was something I was thinking that, you know, it was a thought that ran through my head. And then uh, we, we reference Steinbeck and the Grapes of Wrath. Um, do, yeah, when the doctor's doing the she oh, quotes yeah. Steinbeck and, and they're doing... Uh, and Steinbeck's most famous work, if you heard that and we're looking into it, it's about the Jodes, uh, who are basically unwanted surplus people moving around a country that doesn't want them anymore. And <laughs> so there's, it's like, I don't know, maybe there's something there. Um, yeah. It's it's a because you know a lot of NCIS New Orleans is about marginalized people that are kind of on the edge. Th this one didn't have so much of that, but the first yeah. one definitely did. And because this guy was like a lieutenant on a destroyer, and everyone's like, he was a great guy. You know, he never did anything wrong. And oh yeah, because that's the, that's what kind of interesting at first. Like what kind of gets ruined by the episode synopsis is that like they immediately they don't immediately think it's a bubonic plague they think he's murdered yeah they think and somebody, somebody did something to him like roofied him or something and it got out of yeah. control and then they hit the red button dr <laughs> wade the the uh the uh coroner she hits the red button in, in a building with a bunch of wooden doors and single plane glass it's like well don't come in the room but it's like well this is all throughout <laughs> the building but okay i get it it's a set um <laughs> she identifies it uh, because of the amount of uh, infection in his nose and, and the yellowing of his irises and stuff. Bubonic plague, by the way, is horrible stuff. I'm not going to synopsize it here. Look it up. It's bad. It's the Black Death. It reshaped yeah. Europe and Asia. Uh, six, um, let's see. How many people? It's really important, though. We say 200 million people died of this in the Middle Ages. It is the worst pandemic in human history. Um, um, there's still about... It, 600 cases a year or two. Yeah, it's still around. Um, I think the most deadly variant is like the rarest. I think there's like three variants of it. Because mm -hmm. um, there are still like vermin that like just carry the bubonic plague. And every once in a while, like if you look up the records for like your CDC and your state, it's like 
somebody got the bubonic plague and it's like because they got it from like a prairie rat or something like that yeah, <laughs> yeah it's uh in the u.s it's mainly in the in the in the west it doesn't really like in the midwest there's not a lot of it it's been reported but the yeah. most active recent cases have been Arizona, California, places with ports and desert climates. This stuff really survives in uh, yeah. places where it gets really cold. Not so much unless it's just like ravaging your city and you don't have antibiotics or, or you're in the Middle Ages and you think, well, if we if we whip people, the, the poison will get out of them and you're just flailing blood everywhere. And it's like, yeah, this spreads it around. So basically plague that kind of plague is like a, it, it's like. The meaning there is helplessness. It's like you. How do you fight this? I mean, we know about this now. It's interesting. This <laughs> okay, episode this, was written yeah, this, in 2014. Yeah, this called yeah, this a quaint episode where it's like, <laughs> here's a danger. It's like let's respond accordingly. It's like, oh, how quaint. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're gonna quarantine people and close the state. Like no one's gonna resist, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> and bubonic plague is way more lethal than coronavirus, but I don't think it's contagious. So, well, at least in this episode, I'm not sure, but the, they they did have a a vaccine available. Yeah, they have one available now. It's antibiotics, Cipro, and stuff like that. I think. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a bacteria, so antibiotics will take care of it. I believe it's a bacteria. Yeah, I yeah. think it is. Bacterias are are easier to fight because bacterias have are made of plant cells, and so a uh, part of the there's a part of a plant cell that isn't in animal cells, and you if you Basically, your antibiotic basically is like a shotgun to that part of the cell, and it'll destroy just that part of the cell and nothing else in the body. So that's why antibiotics are great because they just kill the thing. <laughs> yeah, they don't like destroy your liver or something on the way. Where it's like with viruses, that's harder because it's like it you know it looks like your DNA. It's basically and humans. Then, humans are viruses. <laughs> um, and then parasites are even are even harder. Cause it's like, Oh, how do you kill another living thing inside your living thing? Yeah. <laughs> Irradiate the host. It's like, well, uh, <laughs> downside risks. So yeah, the movie or the movie, the TV show goes on. Um, I really, there was a first Katrina reference. There was a Katrina reference in this. They, they, they specifically don't say it. Yeah. It's just a reference. 2005. They say it like, yep. Yep. So wait, it's no, like, was it two that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 2005. Because the thing I was judging in my head, it's like, was that really just four years after 9-11? God, Bush sucked. Oh, yeah. <laughs> People are on the roof. Help us. <laughs> yeah, good job, President. Uh, yep. So that was uh, first first one I've heard. Clearly, I might have missed one, but I, 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 I'm going to count. There, There the is number. a second one, but it's like, it's it's basically, it's like, yeah, New Orleans knows how to pull together in a crisis, and that's also a Katrina reference, but like vaguely. But yeah, well, just remember to, uh, to mix our metaphors here. Um, the bubonic plague destroyed most of the large cities in Europe. Uh, mainly, it was fire uh, because everyone was trying to stop the plague, and eighty percent of New Orleans was destroyed in Hurricane Katrina, or was underwater at some point at at all. But essentially, the city was destroyed as a result of hurricane katrina so it was uh i i i saw they were kind of weaving that together like is this going to be the next thing and then big Fly right, here, here's oh. here's the thing that's like um they did this in both episodes and this is like when they're um the after he gets hit by the taxi he dies from the taxi and there she's like um 
Wade is examining the body. And this happened in the first episode too, where she's just like sitting on a case. Yep. Like she's not standing. She's just sitting on it. I have no idea what that's about. <laughs> like, I don't know if, just, if uh, CCH founder is like, you know what? I'm just going to sit for the scene. It's outside. It's hot. This. Or, or if that's something that speaks to her character. Cause uh, uh, or like, you know, maybe she has like a bum leg or something like that, but she stands in all the other scenes, but yeah, I do she's... notice there was a lot of sitting scenes. I think it's going to become something with the character. I don't know that yeah. or they're filming in new Orleans and it's like, yeah, I'm going to sit down. <laughs> this is, this is just humidity, uh, wrapped around the sun. What was the other thing? Oh, the other, th- oh, big pharma is evil. Yeah. Again. Um, could you, make, oh, here's... would you make this TV show today? It's like, could you do this? Because Big Pharma now, they're our saviors. So yeah. it's like, would you want to send that message? I don't know. <laughs> it's worth thinking about. Um, they're, they're, so like when so they have to go out around and gather up all the sailors that are on leave because this boat is is docked at New Orleans and they're, just, they're all the sailors on leave. It's a plague the ship. Thing I, <laughs> and, but the weird thing is like they, aren't, they don't like – you know, all the guys are like, you know, their phone was off. It was broken. Like, they don't go like, hey, we found them. It's like, hey, we need to go back. They're like, you're under arrest. It's like, what for? Yeah. <laughs> and they point guns at him. Like, they 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 go to that poker game and throw a guy who's potentially infected in the in the swamp. And like, it's like, and they're pointing guns at people. It's like, nobody should be arrested for anything. You just tell them, like, hey, there's a medical emergency. Get the f- yeah. Well, now when they went to find the guy who was the 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 cook at the at the yeah. cafe, now at that point they determined that like, oh, these brownies or bran muffins have like needle marks in them, like somebody injected oh, yeah. something. So that's why they were pointing guns at that guy. Now the p- guy in the swamp, the sailor was like, yeah, okay, fine. But the other guy who was going to win all the money was like, yeah, I'm not leaving my money. And they're like, yeah, you are. <laughs> it's you know, you don't might not like it, but you are. Um, so there was actually a reason they were pointing guns because they thought he was like poisoned the ship with this stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. So, so that that's that's why it did seem a little over the top. But then I was like, oh yeah, they think somebody went to this lab and in, in South America and got this stuff. Yeah, because they well, they said that guy, the the cook guy, was like he was practically bankrupt. But they're like, yeah, but he like volunteers. It's like I guess he's just bad with money. Yeah. <laughs> And so then the real bad guy turns out to be the doctor that was on the ship that was helping yeah. grieving sailors, which is like, well, that's two different kind of doctors, but okay. <laughs> uh, well, you know, you just had to have the bad guy. You wouldn't because I, I knew that that was going to circle back as soon as they first went on the ship and we're talking to the captain and it's like, oh yeah, this is the doctor. He's helping our sailors that are having problems with the lieutenant being dead. It was like, oh, that character is going to circle back around and he did. Uh, and they investigated the ship, and that's where we get a crossover character from regular NCIS with, with the Nozo. That's the guy they called the Plague Whisperer or whatever. Yeah. Uh, presuming also that NCIS had its own possibly multiple Plague episodes. <laughs> yeah, this, it seems to be this guy got hit with this stuff at some point, and now if he goes to scenes involving Navy cr- crime investigations where the bubonic plague is a factor, he gets extra vacation days <laughs> because he's willing to be exposed to the Black Death. Uh, and then you got Abby from regular NCS. She's like the hacker chick lab person who like uh, is like goth or whatever. Yeah. Uh, she, she, she makes an appearance on the television. So that I believe. Uh, and then we do have, we do have a, a little person from the CDC 
who comes in to help out. And that was uh, interesting because it's been the whole scene basically trying to not say anything about it. (laughs) Yeah. This guy's like obviously wildly uncomfortable with her for no, which I don't think people would really act that way. It's like, Oh, she's a professional. Okay, cool. Come in for the bubonic. Yeah. Yeah. Let me me get you. Oh, you know what you're doing? I don't give a Yeah. Good. Here. You need a step stool, like whatever you need. <laughs> I'm just gonna stay out of your way because the death, black death, is here, and I'm really don't care how tall or short you are. <laughs> but for some, it was a part of the show. They had to give all the characters yeah. something to do. Well, I, I think I, well, not necessarily complain, but like for the first episode, I say like for New Orleans, that's largely a black population. There seemed to be a lot of white people around, and then all the black people were just gang members, and it's like that didn't look that great. So here, you had a lot of different diversity. Uh, around like the 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 captain of the ship uh, it was a black woman so you know yeah, a lot more diversity this time around so. yeah well this is 2014 too this was yeah this was before the well, social wars really started so yeah i, I found yeah, I, 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 I i call it the greed plague because the guy the guy he's basically the the company he works for makes the uh vaccine uh the vaccine and so He's trying to create a pandemic so that they could get money for it. So, yeah, because his company is uh, going bankrupt as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, again, would you make this today? Could you? Yeah. <laughs> it was weirdly foretelling. So it kind of, NCIS New Orleans kind of redeemed itself this week for me. I didn't. I wasn't too impressed the first time, but this one I liked more. You you didn't, you had like even less like character development this time around for the main crew, but you had a more interesting. Uh, uh, crime to solve yeah uh, and, and they did a lot of different things it's like you know things things kept changing uh so it was it was a more interesting who done it for this episode compared to the the last one where the the actual crime they're investigating was like the essentially the b plot to the show yeah and they didn't try to horn a lot of really emotional stuff in other yeah. than the fact that the black death is now in new orleans and <laughs> we've got to be careful they you know they called it the bubonic plague but yeah uh, and I have here the case wraps up kind of quickly. Like they catch the guy, kind of an interesting chase where like they, it's one of those those drawbridges that raise up and oh, they yeah, catch the him. Straight drop, yeah. The yeah. only problem I had with that scene is like, why would you have the majority of your forces across the, the water when this guy could just he could conceivably punch Scott Bakula, put his car in reverse, <laughs> and he has the bubonic plague in his car. But you know, it was a TV show, so. They had about five minutes left in the yeah, show. Yeah, it's so. like we got about $5,000 to shoot this scene. Let's go. Hey, can you think we can give the weird drawbridge guy some whiskey and he'd raise this <laughs> for us? Cool. Uh, and then you yeah, have this time, instead of just like cooking in the kitchen, uh, Pride is 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 grilling for the team. They're all just hanging out. Uh, you had this whole thing with Brody the whole episode where she's like reading history and they're just like, yeah, we experienced. We'll just tell you the history. And there was a weird thing there. It's... Um, um, you know, because she's essentially a tourist because she's from Detroit. Yeah. Um, but also there's a thing I think I wrote down where it's like, why are the agents always hanging out? Why do they have no families of them of their own? And I don't know if that's just like them slowly introducing characters or if that's like some more deeper meaning thing. Like they're all lonely because of this job and they can only they can only confide in each other because they're the only ones that actually know what's going on. Well, I know it propels the story along. You don't have to pay a lot of extras to pay f- play family members yeah, but yeah, yeah to my mind it's like the last thing in the world i'm gonna do even if there's a corpse involved is hang out with anyone from work after i don't have to be there <laughs> not that i don't like the people well, from work i mean although the, but i get 10 I mean, hours I get, a day of them 
they did say they're they're safe from the plague, but also you could see them staying away from their family because of the plague. Yeah. Thing. It's like, yeah, just in case, let's stay away from our families. Don't you love me uh, anymore, honey? Yes, I do. But the plague of Justinian, remember. <laughs> but also, there's a thing they do right at the end where it's just they just go right into the next case, so they can't even like put their feet up for a while. It's like, oh, now Marine's dead. Yeah, uh, and I want and I wonder if that will be the case for next week, or if it's just like that's just showing like job never stops or something like that yeah they don't they don't have like they don't hang up the phone like i'm off duty no <laughs> it's always about the job uh there was a thing last week we were wondering why he was uh sleeping at the office yeah i doubt this is the case but like in the military you also you have to uh at least in the marine corps uh you have what's called duty where essentially like you are in charge of a building for like 24 hours oh. like you're essentially security oh god you keep a logbook, like who walks in and all that stuff. And sometimes like you'll have multiple people on duty and like uh, there'll, there'll be a bed by nearby and like, you know, you have uh, sleeping shifts and stuff like that. So I didn't know if like maybe pride pulled duty, but because this is like a civilian organization, I doubt that. Like they just get like a sailor or a Marine to watch the place. Yeah, they would, <laughs> they would dragoon some help instead of paying overtime. <laughs> you got to pay people for that in the it's like we're world. investigators like why are we doing duty like why are we security like we're <laughs> well you never know so uh we watched the mentalist yeah. and this was uh you can go ahead and recap the episode because i just have my weird notes <laughs> season one episode two red hair and silver tape so this is actually the first title because the one was just previously was just called pilot uh original air date September 30th, 2008, CBS Tuesday. Now, here's an interesting thing. It's like, um, I guess because it's six years apart, the calendar repeats because the NCIS and the Mentalists are on the exact same dates, just six years apart. Okay, weird. <laughs> what does it mean? Uh, <laughs> well, it means that in September, that's when the new show's there. <laughs> oh. Uh, I I actually think I don't I think these will separate at some point because I don't know uh, for there's production issues or if like you know somebody has like we had the Olympics or whatever well, I don't know the Olympics will go on in September but uh, it seems that one of these shows gets uh, sidelined for a bit so they will probably um, diverge lose this yeah yep uh, episode description the body of Melanie O'Keefe is found at a Napa Valley vineyard. Teresa believes the murder is the result of an argument between lovers. Uh, again, all these descriptions are from Internet Movie Database, so just give it. Uh, showrunner Bruno Heller, written by Bruno Heller and Ken Woodorf, and directed by David Nutter. All right. David Nutter, wherever I heard that name. I don't know. I, mean, I can look it up. Yeah. Let's talk about the show. Uh, it says he's known as the director and producer for Game of Thrones. Okay, that's where I knew it from. It looks like he's worked on the Pacific too. So, anyway, uh, interesting. Uh, this, this episode starts with a black and white description uh, of the mentalist, the definition for the mentalist. Yes, I noticed uh, it was know, different this time. So that's new, and it looks like that will that will continue on. All right. Uh, so just know everybody knows what a mentalist. Yeah, because maybe yeah, maybe people are confused. Oh, it's always like the like that show, The Alienist. Yeah, where it's like I, I I've seen actually I never saw the first season, but I saw like some of the second season, and like I like from the show title, it's like the 
is that? <laughs> and I don't think they give it a description. But... Oh, no, they do. <laughs> oh, they do? Okay. Yeah, well, I've read the book. Um, book's great, and I've watched the TV series. TV series is great. An alienist is like a 19th century term for a what we would call a psychiatrist today. But an oh, alienist okay. studies crazy people who are alienated from their true selves. That's why they're called alienists. They don't use oh. those terms anymore because we have a different concepts of mental health than we did in the you know 1890s when that show was set. Because that's when like Freud would have been a young man then, um, and Jung and all those people. But yeah, that's that has nothing to do with what we're doing. But yeah, this it actually is good to g- explain the term mentalist because that is a very old term too. So yeah. it's it's a good they, they made a good choice to do that because the people just reading that is like is he a wizard does he have magical <laughs> powers which is exactly the opposite of what the show is trying to do <laughs> so yeah it was uh, I'm I'm glad they put that in there I mean I knew it was in there because I did something crazy like look it up on the computer what is a mentalist <laughs> it's like oh it's like kind of like Houdini or a, more of a, a well like a, like a when trickster. I was pitching the show like we should watch the mentalist like you were confused because that didn't give you any description. Yeah. Of- what the show was like, am i watching someone like get out of handcuffs in a water tank what am i what am i seeing here or someone doing like uh, card forces on people and like i knew you'd choose that card and so it is kind of that but yeah yeah he does the uh he embarrasses the sheriff by knowing what he'll choose in rock paper scissors yes and this um, the... yeah because it opens up with like they find a body in a like a like they don't it's like in a grave but it's not buried (laughs) or did they uncover it and she was buried no it's like in a in a ravine with like pipes and stuff for watering the grapes and then because this is in the napa valley it's be like in northern northern more northern california mid mid california and no those were all the irrigation pipes and she was just kind of thrown in there because it wasn't visible unless you look down into the pit but she wasn't buried she's kind of dusty yeah, I had something about like the look of the show. Is like the the outdoor was very muted. Like the colors are very muted. It reminded me of like the last scene in Seven. Yes. Um, and I didn't know if like there were there's a for lot of things like... in this show that remind me of Seven. I have no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it is an investigative unit that like covers serial killers. Right, so. right. It makes sense. Um, but it almost gave me like this kind of like Mad Max vibe, like the original Mad Max, where it's like society's still together, but there's kind of a looming essence that anything could fall apart at any moment. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if they are trying to go for that here, but I just added it to it anyways. Like something's wrong with this world. <laughs> well, yeah, because they're not in the steel city of like Los Angeles or, or in the environs around there, the big suburbs. They're kind of in a nut. They're in like a desert place yeah like there's it's a lot of poor people who you know, like the the girl that was killed was just kind of a local girl going to you know got got a scholarship to ucla for playing softball which was like the dad the mom and the dad were likable decent people and it's like we you know she had her her purity ring and which, which that's a theme in this too but it's like she seemed like a on the surface to be a decent person and actually she really was she just got kind yeah. of caught up with um one uh, intentionally bad guy and then some other bad people too that were completely crazy but i have this is the second time in a, in a row no not really in a row but in the sh- in show wise that like they're interviewing like the like the grieving uh mother and, and father are are grieving 
and then he just walks into their house and invades their home. Yes. <laughs> to and looks at pictures and basically starts putting things together. Um, and then they made the, her, her brother, which I almost like they're not going to make him the killer, right? So I was like weirdly suspecting the kid because he was like seemed to be like not like sort of slightly autistic, like he wasn't he didn't have emotions. But... Yeah, he didn't seem to be in contact with the emotions that you'd think he would be, considering his sister was violently murdered. Well, yeah. or maybe not violently murdered, but you know, murdered nonetheless. And yeah, um, yeah, he seemed like kind of. A, I wondered where that was going to go, but it just became a metaphor for the mentalist's own childhood, Jane's childhood about <laughs> don't carry anger with you, and you know, don't don't regret, don't make decisions you'll regret, because this guy, this kid was going to kill the person he thought was responsible for his sister's death with an yeah. axe <laughs> that he had in a restaurant. This is what I'm going to use. I gotta put that away. <laughs> it was a little like oh okay okay this kid's going for it <laughs> but that's later on uh and then they, they and they think the um melanie they think that because he sees he uh patrick jane sees a picture of her with a with a woman like at, at a trip and so he thinks that like she she had a, they had a relationship uh and then they go to work to the to, to interview her and he basically like put, does a hypnotized trick on her yeah that seems to be total bullcrap at first but then it works later on it's like what 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 <laughs> but you know so we're slightly giving him magic powers but yeah. <laughs> well we're giving yeah we're giving him credit for something that really doesn't work yeah, yeah. but it, it works it's a great mechanism for the show yeah um because hypnosis uh one some true hypnosis which doesn't exist or can only be done chemically like you can give people drugs and make them tell you things um but it's it's like truth without uh it's called truth without volition it's like you're not choosing to tell the truth you're being manipulated or in some way you know so it's like truth without truth which is kind of what she did you know she did say what was going on and what she suspected and who he was in a relationship with but she was never emotionally engaged and they kind of made it seem like it's because she was high all the time. <laughs> they kind of hinted around that's like she seems kind of like emotionless and weird. It's like oh she's stoned. It's like she's stoned constantly. Like just never stops being stoned. But she was sort of in and out. Like I think they established something with the main character that he can do, and then it's like okay, it's a throwaway after this. It's like yeah, it works. See. Well, also they gave him like a, a like like a dilemma or like this is a. Um a punishment for doing this. They give it a, that a potential. It's like, don't do that. Like if somebody finds out you're hypnotizing people, like everything she says will be inadmissible. <laughs> doesn't matter. Even if you formally hypnotized her, it's still inadmissible. <laughs> I checked it out. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not a legal expert, but I looked it up. It's like, no, <laughs> you can't t accept uh, testimony from people that are under duress or, or influence or something. Yeah. So it wouldn't matter. It's like, yeah, if it leads you to the killer, then, you know, then you charge the killer with the murder, but, good lawyer get you off oh we have like some rashomon stuff going on because uh everyone has their last moments with uh with melanie and like they yeah. all seem to be slightly different so that that was like kind of interesting yeah well that's a challenge for jane because usually he comes in and he puts everything together right away but it seems like now people have a different interpretation uh we don't know if it's the truth or not yeah because well yeah also like they have a thing where the people are telling the story but then the flashback is just what actually happened. Yeah. 
and there's inconsistency there. So yeah, and that that's you know that's the complication of life. Even if you're a super intuitive Sherlock Holmes huckster guy, it's still it's hard to piece it all together because the motivations are so weird, and he doesn't know who's really doing it until they show up. It's it's because he thinks it's one thing, but then it turns out to be something else. Yeah, because yeah, they immediately blame the 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 boyfriend from the other side of the tracks, who is a bad uh, person, but yeah. just not a, a killer for no reason. <laughs> He's not yeah. a sex killer. Like he's just, he's a violent, angry person who's in a relationship with this girl and and wants her to get away from him. Weirdly <laughs> enough, it's like, yeah, go to UCLA. There's no future here, because he's like some gang guy named Hector. And it's like, did you ever beat her up? Oh yeah, but she had to know the boundaries and j- just like straightforward. <laughs> like, yeah, of course that you add the uh, you, you know you add the spices to the rice after you cook it. Like it was just stated that way. Like. What's everyone looking at me weird for? Yeah, there's blood in my truck from her. Beat the shit out of her because she had to know the boundaries. And it's like, what? Okay. It's like, I hope this guy goes to jail but for different things. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's this guy definitely. Why would you admit that? <laughs> doesn't need to be walking around. But yeah. And I have here, they're, they're building some sexual tension between uh, Jane and Lisbon. Yes. Um, That's That was always going on. She's less yeah. of the mean boss in this. She still yeah. kind of is. She's like results orientated, but she's not like, uh, you know, I'm just going to push you over because I can. Well, she, she's also like his handler. Like she has to keep like none of the other guys on the team will get in his way, but she will. Yeah. Yeah. Because the other guys on the team are just fascinated with him. They're like, man, he's always right. And she's like, no, he isn't. <laughs> yeah. The Asian guy likes the way he thinks. And the other guy is just like a dumb football player it's like yeah whatever he says usually works so i'm gonna follow him (laughs) um and the asian guy wants to like decipher him like i want to know how to do this like this is a interesting skill (laughs) yeah yeah i I picked up on like the purity ring and the purity pledge in this right away is like oh this is interesting this is like a seven deadly sins episode because we've got you know the the purity the virgin who loses purity because she put a ring in her locker she's not wearing anymore which means she's involved and then she gets killed. And it's like, Oh, I see what happens when you stray from the path. And <laughs> I mean, we don't exactly have all the seven deadly sins here. Well, but the, we've the, got... the cook is like gluttony. Cause that's how, that's where Patrick Jane picks up on something. That's the only clue he has where they, uh, Lisbon tries to like, how'd you know that? And that's his justification. But like, that absolutely is not a hundred percent justification. That's just his guess. He's just, good at guessing <laughs> there's a lot of butter in this food it's it's like he's like complimenting the chef like that's your secret butter right as much as you can take you know and it's and james immediately like this guy's joss whedon's a gluttonous man um that's not who the actor is but it looks like him um, yeah, yeah. it's kind of a fatter <laughs> version of that um and then his wife's kind of a weird person and um it's like but they seem like they're just like kind of these assertive people that run a restaurant in the you know napa valley wine country which is you know that's where all the rich people from la go to drink their wine and be sophisticated it's like you know so they seem like and this is where all the characters except the hector work is at this restaurant um and and the chef is the, the head chef is definitely not nice to his employees uh because he goes and slaps the guy on the head who was hitting on the 
a victim and he passes out when Thomas Jane or when Jane's like, yeah, yeah, no, he murdered. I'm going to start saying Thomas Jane. I'm going to mix this up. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, she, uh, so yeah. Anyway, so we go through all this stuff and we'll just, you know, I'm assuming you watch the episode in the end, it turns out to be the husband and wife that own the restaurant are just picking up girls and killing them. Um, and it happens specifically redhead girls, specifically, right? Yeah, it's because it's the episode's called what red hair and duct tape, red hair and silver tape, or something. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, these two are, yeah. are, are buddies. And like, it might be something weird with like the wife because she's also a redhead, right? Right. I think so. Yeah. So he's like like a die job redhead. <laughs> well, see, the weird thing about them, see, that's what I picked up on because we got gluttony and lust. Like those two characters are that now because he's gluttony. I don't know if she's lust or wrath. I'm not sure. Because I don't know what you'd get out of your husband like murdering some other woman in front of you. Well, really, they didn't murder people initially, did they? And they just drug people and yeah, and kind of tie them up. And then it was like, it's when the wife was restraining Melanie that she like basically suffocated her. Yeah, yeah, this wasn't an intentional killing. So they were doing something weird and lustful. But they're but like Tom or Patrick Jane is suggesting that like they're working their way up to killing somebody. Yeah, and. Which is like where that he uh, he picks up on something or he finds a hotel and he's like, "This is where they're gonna kill him next." And like, because he finds some cleaning supplies and he just waits in the room. But he finds up bleach weird, weird... and duct tape and like visqueen sheets that you lay down. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's an obvious tell. There's not too many other things you use that stuff for. Uh, Which is a, a, a like a, a big comedy moment when they just. They bust in the room and like have the body, and he's just like sitting on the bed, and he's like, "Oops, I should hide." <laughs> and yeah, and he basically like hides against the door as they walk into the bedroom, and he think he's gonna like walk out, but it's like, no, that's too close. They'll see that movement, and they finally see him, and he's like, "Don't move!" In this commanding voice, "Don't move!" <laughs> There's, you know, the, the people are coming. This place is surrounded, and they're like, "No, it isn't." It's you know, we know it's not surrounded. Um, and it's like another moment where like he positions himself to be in the right place, but like he he has no way of defending himself. <laughs> yeah, he never has a gun or a knife or anything, because the chef's got like a big chef's knife, and the wife's got like a a gun that she yeah. doesn't have the safety turned off on. Because uh, Lisbon comes in and shoots them both to death because she's the guy's waving a knife around and she's trying to figure out the safety to shoot back at her and. Um, so it was kind of a weird it almost seemed like the it's the story hit the brakes halfway through and then it coasted along and then this happens and it like hits the accelerator and it's like okay we're done (laughs) (laughs) this is who did it now the one character that seemed weird in this was when they tried to set up the person they thought was gonna abduct their their redhead from the restaurant the undercover cop was the sheriff like what's that guy's deal again i don't read in advance so i don't know but I'm thinking, well, this guy's going to come up again. He's got yeah. it somehow because it's like, oh, he was being weirdly aggressive with her. Like, no, come on, let me give you a ride. And she's like, no, no, I'm fine, no. And then it's like, hey, you're drunk. You're coming with me. Like, he grabs her. And, <laughs> and then the, the other guy, the cops, they're watching their undercover agent. Um, and I can't remember the names. I'm terrible. But, yeah, they come out Rig- of the car. and Rigsby is the, the meathead football guy. Yeah, so they're, like, pointing guns at the sheriff. Like, yeah. babe, what are you doing? And it's like, oh, this is this has got to come back. And and there's another reason I think that because rock paper scissors, that's an Asian thing. That it, 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 rock paper scissors is how it got kind of Anglicanized. 
But that started it's a Rochambeau. At, no, that's something else. The rock oh, paper okay. scissors is. Uh, it was like I forget what it was in China, but it spread out through. But it was always three like things with opposing forces and strengths and weaknesses. That's a form of war without fighting war. It's like a conflict. <laughs> we're gonna have this conflict and solve this problem, but no one's gonna get hurt. But we're practicing for you know some kind of violence in the future and that's that's the kind of the, the rock paper scissors that is the like metaphor for that in the english language is like it's a form of passive war it means you're <laughs> going to come into conflict with someone i could be totally fully <laughs> but you know i got a whole season to figure it out yeah <laughs> yeah we i mean this is the show we give a bit more credit to just because there's a lot to read into it if you want to. We'll yeah. see if it means anything. But. Right. That's the point. Oh, and also <laughs> I learned that marriage is a collection of mental illness. <laughs> because of Was the... that in the show? Okay. No, I just made that up. I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> just when the husband and wife, when it ended like that, I was like, oh, this is oh, just a okay. collection of crazy people. I mean, not everyone's marriage, but still, yeah, a lot of marriages, if you think about it, uh, can go that way. Uh, it's just two people feeding uh, off the worst parts of each other. Has there ever been like a, a husband and wife serial killer? Would that be a first? Uh, you know, I'm not off the top of my head. I don't know. I think in the UK there was like the husband was the killer. The wife was sort of enabling like I'll help okay. you hide the bodies. and shit. I could be wrong yeah. on that, but I think there was something like that because it was very weird because it's like serial murder is a unique pathology usually uh, normal people that aren't also crazy aren't like yes let's go on this journey together they're like well what the <laughs> f are you doing <laughs> why do you want to kill these people to steal their money but no what, what are you doing oh. there's also a lot, of, a lot of things in like very bad things that happen in like the 20s and 30s that like now we'd probably categorize yes. as serial killers but like um but it wasn't categorized then so like there's a lot of people that like because usually it's like, well, it's just it's usually a, a white male that is a serial killer. Uh, then like Eileen Warnass was like the first female serial killer. But like, there's like, oh, there's this one lady. She's basically she was just like, she was just a thief. And this is like in the this is like in the twenties, and she'd just take on like runaways and like they rob places, and then she'd like kill one of them, and then she'd like help. But it was always like two. She'd get one of them to help her kill the other one. And I'm not sure if it was for a reason, but she killed like thousands of kids. Well, not thousands, like tens of kids. Yeah. More than one. So too many. But yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. There's, there's stories. Um, uh, what was the guy's name? Panzer Panzeram or something like that. There was a serial killer in Germany, uh, between the two world wars. And one of the first governments in the world to recognize that there are people that kill just for the pleasure of killing without financial or sexual type things that they just want to kill. I mean, there's always a sex element because usually it's a white guy killing women or children, someone weaker than him. Yeah. Um, but I know that the Weimar government got really efficient at like, oh, this is a psychotic personality. This kind of killing, there's no money involved. It's not like a prostitute tried to steal my money and someone slaughtered her with a knife. This is, I think it was Ed Panzeram was the guy who did it. And um, so I, I know like in the thirties there, it was kind of seen as fringy stuff, but because the Weimar government, despite the fact that they couldn't run their economy worth it was pretty progressive in letting ideas and stuff like, Oh, well, we, we can pursue police work this way. 
It, we, we can bring shrinks in and stuff. It's not all just guys with knuckle dusters and beating the hell out of hobos. It's like we can actually do some police work. Uh, then all, that all got swept away with, you know, World War II and then kind of revisited in the 50s and 60s. But, yeah, that, there was a concept of it, of, like, the, the, the thrill murderers. I mean, remember Devil in the White City? Like, that guy yeah. was a – they didn't really have – the reason he got away with it is, like, well, what's he doing? Like, what is this? It's like, well, these people are being killed. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, there would be no point. Like, they wouldn't think of it because there's no point to it. Yeah. Like, why would somebody do that? <laughs> yeah, there's no gain in this. But then it's like, oh, yeah, people are sick. They're, they are wound weird, some of them. So, but anyway, so that's the mentalist for this week. Oh, yeah. And also, um, uh, Patrick Jane is always in the room when people get shot. Yeah, that seems to be a thing. He's there to witness the <laughs> violence and not really, and be kind because of the, he set, he kind of, because he sets it up. Yeah, he set those dominoes up and he knows where to stand so they don't fall on him. Of course, in this one, I don't know, when she shot the husband, he was standing right behind the husband. So it's like, you better hope Lisbon's a good shot and those bullets don't just tunnel through because <laughs> you could get some splash, but, you know, it's not going to happen because it's a TV show unless it needs to happen. They'll have some interstitial scene where he'll put, like, a uh, you know a plate or something under his shirt and then she'll have to shoot <laughs> someone. He's like, I knew that bullet would go through because of the, you know, so whatever Jane's, you know, magic is, that's what they'll do. And our, and our final, final episode, our final show, Miami Vice. Season one, episode two, Heart of Darkness. Original yeah. air date, September 28, 1984. NBC. 10 years old. Friday. <laughs> um, so the first episode, I went back and looked at this. It uh, it premiered on Sunday. But the show was on is was uh, shown on Fridays. I'm not sure if it switches at some point. Because there's a thing, and I'm not sure. It might have been different now. But Friday is always kind of seen as like the slot yeah for television shows because thursday's the big night because what thursday usually is is where you sell ad space for the movies that are coming out on friday because friday is date night that's when you go out and watch movies you go to dinner so nobody is at home to watch a television show <laughs> yeah uh that's the presuming a theory uh so it's interesting to see that miami vice was a friday show um but we'll see if that moves because, like, you know, obviously it was a huge show. But well, I think some of the uh, I think some of the stuff with Miami Vice, because I actually I'm, I, I did a little more research on the Miami Vice show because I'm familiar with as soon as I see as soon as I get 10 minutes into one, I was like, I remember this one. This is where the guy <laughs> from Married with Children plays Colonel Kurtz from Heart of Darkness. Um, but this uh, uh, um a lot of things with Miami Vice is it was an exceptionally violent show for its time for network TV. So I think yeah. they thought 10 o'clock set Friday night was a safe slot for it because yeah. it's like, this is a, I mean, they didn't know at the time this is, this became the culturally influencing show of the 1980s. So once yeah. it became cool, it's like, yeah, they can machine gun hookers. We don't care. <laughs> but initially I think they were trying to, to play it safe and, Oh, mom and dad reminded me. I, I actually had a suit uh, in these colors when I was younger, when I was like twelve <laughs> or thirteen. Like I wanted to dress, you know, like these guys. And uh, I forgot how much oh, I was really into this show. <laughs> that's that's way better than what I did as a kid. I got a mullet because of MacGyver. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that too. 
At least you could look cool. <laughs> well, no, I was a big fat guy in a pastel suit. Um, <laughs> even as a 12-year-old or whatever. I don't know if it looked cool. People knew what it was because I think they had to look for it to, to buy, find them in those colors. But that, that kind of – because what's that called? Electric fuchsia. And there's an actual Miami Vice color palette thing yeah. you can go to because um, Nike released – was it the shoes for the Miami Heat? They were done in the Miami Vice palette. Like huh. the, uh, it was a black shoe, but the Nike swoosh had the two, like the fuchsia and the pink, like em- embroidered behind it or whatever. And it was like in- an homage to, to Miami Vice. So yeah, the episode description we have is investigating a porn baron. Crockett and Tubbs become involved with an undercover FBI agent who may have gone native and become a criminal and may have murdered an underage porn starlet. Meanwhile, Zito and Zwitek pose as fences, and Elvis the Crocodile feels unloved. Yes. <laughs> Showrunner Michael Mann, written by this episode, written by Anthony Yurkovic, Daniel Pine, and Joel Surnow. Yeah. Uh, directed by John Llewellyn Moxie. Yeah, this was, uh, this was definitely, uh, I know we watched the kind of the pilot. This 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 first episode really establishes the motif in Miami Vice uh, that that carries throughout the series. I mean, towards the end, it got really janky. Like in the late '80s, it was like, "Oh, how ridiculous can we make this?" You know, <laughs> someone stealing a nuclear bomb. Like, what? This these are vice cops in Miami. You know, I, I don't know if it ever got that far, but it did get pretty weird. But I mean, like the first episode, it's about drugs. It's like obviously, like vice is going to be out. Now this is a different vice. This is about porn. Yeah, and it opens uh, up to a porn shoot that's actually like for the time. And for what they're doing is like, oh, this is kind of a racy scene. And it's it also seems nasty. Yeah, because so, well, yeah, well, it starts out with just like, okay, you have uh, 80s aerobics. And then you have like an 80s song. It's like, so they continue with that theme. So it's like, okay, we're the 80s. Uh, and then it's a very young looking woman. And then it's like a guy locks up the door. is like, I'm here to service your unit. And then it's like, oh, this is, this is a porn. Yeah, this is some kind okay. of show or something. Yeah. And then, like, eventually, like, they show the camera. It's like, okay, yeah, this is a porn. But then there's a part where, like, the guy's like, ah, it's going to cost 50 bucks. He's like, I don't have that money. And then it just kind of becomes, like, a basically a rape scene. Yeah. Hey, get your (laughs) hands off me. And like, what? It's like, is that what this guy's, like, is that what their specific deal is? Like, why? what their porn is how their porn is different because like in every scene it's just like an amicable thing where it's like hey you're happy about this i'm happy about this let's do this not this like well i'm gonna take advantage of you it's like i don't want to watch that porn (laughs) yeah and then it turns out it's like oh no she wasn't acting she was uncomfortable but they're feeding her cocaine and you also find out she's a 16 year old girl from kansas yeah uh, which is revealed later um and Crockett and Tubbs are there pretending to be a couple Jersey porn distributors. Uh, they're working the front, and then Zwitek and they, the other... They need content. Yeah. They don't have enough content. And then Zwitek and the other guy are the, are the backup. They're the actual cops. That Because uh, Crockett and Tubbs get arrested a lot by cops in this to kind of prove they're legitimate. <laughs> but then they walk around crime scenes with police ID badges on in the same city... It's like, yeah, hey, I wonder if these guys are cop, but you know, it's a TV show, whatever. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, there's one, there's one part I confused. Cause I thought Tubbs was like wearing a badge on a necklace because they do that a lot, and I was like, 
there's a part where he's like he's undercover why is he wearing his cop badge and then it was but well, no it was just a medallion it wasn't a cop yeah, badge yeah. Well, they, yeah they don't i don't think the around the neck cop badges were around then uh, i don't yeah. know when those came in but yeah they're, they're walking around sometimes though with id badges on like in plastic lanyards it says like metro date investigators like huh this, this, isn't, this isn't good undercover but actually you know it's a cool story and that's all it is but this, uh, it was fun to see Ed Ed O'Neill, <laughs> who everyone knows from Married with Children, yeah. playing a uh, multiple uh, multiple roles. Uh, he's Art. Ar- Let's see, he's Artie Rollins, and uh, Arthur Rollins is. is uh, but it turns out he's like a deep cover FBI agent who they don't know if he's like, oh, is he actually into crime or not? Because of course yeah. we established right away in this show that the Miami police department and the fbi don't get along they don't like each other <laughs> yeah um, the fbi are idiots but the vice cops they're the smart guys yeah, <laughs> yeah all the guys they just with, get paid less to be smarter <laughs> all the guys with like law degrees that went to you know the fbi academy for three years yeah they're a bunch of dumbasses. <laughs> but these couple of these vice guys show up and they're like well i mean they would know the city better but but it turns out actually in this show and and in this in this episode i'm just going to talk about this episode it actually makes sense that's like oh we don't like the fbi because the fbi was like wildly corrupt and playing their own game here (laughs) yeah um but you don't find that out until much later in the episode so initially it's the it's the typical local cop standing up to the feds routine but what i like about this is where miami vice always you know usually gets it right is like oh no there's a reason for that it's not just a trope because the levels of corruption go deeper and deeper and deeper, and you've always got people playing different yeah, they're, games. Yeah, they're, they're psychologically damaging this guy to get a better case. Yeah, and like, and they and just he keep is pushing a him FBI off. agent, and he yeah. wants out. He is a legitimate. He's not some guy they just paid to flip. It's like he has a wife and family. He sells shoes in Chicago. No, but he, <laughs> he does have a wife and a family, and he wants to get out, and he wants to get back to something, and the FBI won't let him out. This is. Uh, this is the uh, Ed O'Neill character we're talking about. And, and this is supposed to be like a mirror for the Crockett character. Who's yeah. Like, yeah. I've been there. Like, I know what it's like. So that's like, like the fate of the fate of Arthur is supposed to, is supposed to be like um, Crockett looking at his future. It's like, is that going to happen to me? <laughs> yeah, am I going to get so deep? I don't come out. <laughs> but see, that's where the whole heart of darkness thing theme comes from. It's because yeah. like, you know, Kurtz, did he go native? Is he actually a criminal? Yeah, you'll, you'll have to go in depth because I, I like I just know it from Apocalypse Now and stuff. I've never actually read the Heart of Darkness story and stuff. So. Oh, it's cool. You'll If you read read Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, you'll find all kinds of movies and TV shows that we like that are direct because the ship they're on is called the Nostromo. Uh, <laughs> the guy that – I don't know if he's a colonel, but his name is Kurtz, and he was like a German uh, paramilitary or something. that was. This was back in the you know 1800s. But uh, yeah, it's if yeah, I mean, I'm not going to recap Heart of Darkness for everyone. Read it; it's not very long, <laughs> but you'll find all kinds of references that we like come from Joseph Conrad's yeah. Heart of Darkness. As far as the episode goes, it, I mean, it looked cool. Uh, everyone did a great uh, job acting. Uh, the only thing I thought it was like weird is like all the sound mix. Like, if they weren't playing licensed music and there wasn't any kind of like music, there's just this uncomfortable hum of silence yep it, it just felt like they didn't get the audio right for the show <laughs> I'm not one, sure of, why. one of the things with miami vice when um 
Uh, I don't know if it was was it Littlefield or Trotman. I'm not sure who came up with that. Uh, but it was supposed to be MTV Cops. And every episode had $10,000 set aside to buy the rights to license music because they always wanted licensed music playing. So sometimes yeah. they would play licensed music and it's like, oh, we, we kind of blew the budget. We got $10,000 for soundtrack. We can only play these songs in certain places because the songs aren't going to constantly be following these guys around on their Ferraris and boats. So there's going to be a lot of silence or just that guitar chord that <laughs> you know because and and it's also uh, well maybe you would know or not but it's also very possible because these things have been relicensed for streaming so there could be music that is excised from these episodes there could be but i think if they when they redid them for streaming they would put something in there but maybe they wouldn't i don't know yeah because uh, that is a huge problem for almost any mtv original show especially from the 90s when streaming didn't exist yep. is like they basically the only way to get them the way you want to see them is to pirate them because they're like either that because like daria like all the music was just taken out and the, that one worked better because like what they filled it in with it was fine because daria wasn't necessarily about like listening to yeah. 90s music or watching the show but beavis but like, and butthead was annihilated yeah <laughs> yeah that was, that was fairly essential yeah <laughs> And then, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of shows where they just use licensed music and then it's just not there anymore. Like I, like I don't like, like the state was like a, a comedy show, a sketch comedy show where a bunch of people came out of there and like, there's no way to watch that unpirated because it was just like, I don't think there's any official release from MTV for that. And there's just a lot of, cause it was just never licensed for, you know, and like, and even if it went to home video and stuff like that, it's like that's not that's separate from streaming. You have to relicense it for streaming because that's just how the world works. <laughs> well, you got to remember too, like a lot of these shows were just made to be one and done, disposable. They they they, yeah. they have the you have the syndication rights in perpetuity to all that stuff because you're just rebroadcasting it the same way. So you can yes. play all the Phil Collins you want because you bought the rights to that for this presentation. But when these properties started to become hot again because they don't make anything original anymore, well, then it's like really hard. Because I, I heard like the li the rights on some of the, like some of the Miami Vice stuff just lapsed. Like this is like yeah, it's done. We've we ran it on syndication on USA for twenty years, and it's and who wants to see this? And now all of a sudden it's like it's back, and you can stream it again. But yeah, there's uh, that's a whole different medium of entertainment. I'm just surprised they didn't get pipe hitting lawyers to settle all that. But. <laughs> There's just too much money on the table. It's, people are going to yeah. fight over that. Forever. Well, especially like the music licensing fees are crazy now because, you know, people don't make money off of albums anymore. Yeah. So it's just all licensing. Stuff, yeah. If you can so. get it on a TV show for what was Adam Carolla talking about? He wanted to license some blues song for his road hard movie. And they're like, yeah, I'll give this guy $10,000 or whatever. They called him if he wanted $800,000. Like, well, f you then it's not going to be in the movie. <laughs> Kiss my nose. Listen to that song in 20 years kiss my ass yeah i hear like any michael jackson song is like it's a million dollars to license it for your movie yeah, um, yeah same with like Beatles. i think like beatles like i think the, the beatles songs they don't want to license it but there is like a there is a target fee like if you want to spend five million dollars to get a beatles song you can put it in there yeah yeah there probably is stuff like that but and also, it's also a weird thing because, like, 
the artists don't necessarily own their own music either yeah. so it's just like just some dude profiting off of licensing all this stuff too so who was the lunatic who bought the wu-tang clan album the evil uh, skrillex yeah, yeah. or whatever yeah, yeah. not skrillex skrillex yeah skrillex is someone else sorry dude yeah. not you um <laughs> But yeah, and he had to give that up. Martin Screlly, that's his name. Yeah, he had to give that up. Uh, yeah. Because, oh. Well, yeah, because you're going to prison. <laughs> for for uh, insider or trading or I don't know, it, it, all kinds of F, FTC violations. But yeah, anyway, Miami Vice. Yeah, so they have a big shootout at the end because the, the porn baron's trying to get out and there's a bunch of like underage. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, I always forget that the, the starlet at the beginning they basically find out she ran away. She's underage and they killed. She was, they, they suspect maybe she died of a drug overdose, but they implied that uh, she was drowned by somebody. Um, and then the, like, it's made, it's kind of implied that it could have been uh, Arthur that did it. And even he's not sure. He's like, did I? <laughs> yeah. That was a weird moment. Like, did I kill this girl? It's like, you think you remember, but then you realize well, I, what a mess his life is become. Yeah. So. It's like he might not know um because that's the thing that's like the weird like lead out at the end where it's like yeah we got him out everything's fine and then he went to the bathroom and hung himself yeah <laughs> it's like jesus oh. and that was the only thing that's where i was like wondering like about the if like was it just that like he couldn't go back and like that's why he hung himself or did he kill the girl and that's why he hung himself no he told uh he told crockett he goes i'm gonna it's the adrenaline he goes, I yeah. can't, I, I want out, but I can never go back. And I know that I'm going to be miserable. I'm just going <laughs> to, I think he even said, I'm going to end up dead soon because yeah. I can't live without this life, but I hate this life. That's when Crockett was like all introspective about where am I going? You know? And um, it's like, you're going to be the sheriff and, and Watchmen, the TV series. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they, uh, yeah, that was the thing. Uh, like he wanted out, but he couldn't get out you know? <laughs> you're gonna be the marvel man <laughs> yeah like i had a great television career <laughs> he had a great television career not so much movies but that's not always your fault either it's like i need to work okay we got an idea <laughs> it's terrible but we got one so yeah that was uh that was Miami Vice, and you and it, it only gets darker from here. <laughs> I mean, it gets it, it. Sometimes it's so bleak. It's like, oh, these guys would have killed themselves years ago. <laughs> like, there's no way someone can meet literally in the same episode, meet a character, fall in love, and it's machine gun to death. And or, <laughs> or it's like your best friends betraying you every other episode. And you don't really have <laughs> friends, and you're mad at the crocodile and or alligator or whatever it is. Which this was the first time that was introduced. That he plays that crocodile or alligator or whatever becomes a like almost regular character. Yeah. Even though he's chastised for not doing a good job of guarding the boat. <laughs> but So now we turn to the Verhoeven effect where we'll kind of draw conclusions between both shows and maybe uh, give them more credit than deserve or, or why not? Well, one thing I forgot to point out is like the way humor is implemented in these shows is very odd because <laughs> it really it shouldn't be there but because these are television shows they want to make their characters likable right so that's why you have this humor just like put in the middle of a murder investigation <laughs> where it really shouldn't be there but 
Yeah, no one's uh, this plucky and optimistic looking at a dead 16-year-old in real <laughs> life. It's like, well, what do you think of the what do you think of the shrimp, you know? It's not Miami Vice doesn't do that. Their humor is is like it's always it's always something else cuz it's like Tubbs can't find a decent place to live cuz he's from yeah. New York. He's like, "Where the hell do you live or, down here?" Well, and just the alligator, that's that's funny. Yeah, that's Everything funny. He does. And, and the part when he was like chastising the FBI agents like about how they they blew the the tail and stuff like that. It's like and it's like he's like, "You sure you don't want to pull the circus in town the next time we're going out on a Yeah, we're <laughs> going to rent like what are we going to do? Rent broadcast time to tell the criminals what we're doing and by the way that was a real cool evasion scene when the yeah. guy was driving that big lincoln it was ed o'neill and he and he knew the fbi was behind him somehow he whipped around that corner and didn't lose one of those hubcaps i don't know how that <laughs> happened but it was a really cool scene and also a thing i, I think is interesting is that so so immediately what i thought about this is like oh is this like is this uh, like some uh, rip from the headlines? Is this like vaguely about Tracy Lords? But no, this preceded Tracy Lords. Yeah, this was before. Tracy Lords was like 86, I think. 84. 84. Same okay. year. Same year. Uh, but like, it isn't found out that she's underage till 86. Okay. So okay. this is two years before that happens. Right. So I'll explain what Tracy Lords. Tracy Lords was a porn star who lied about her age. She had like a neighbor. She she got in a she got pregnant and then got an abortion and then like uh and like she was getting helped out by like a neighbor and then the neighbor gave her her birth certificate and like idea ID so she could get a job and so she worked in the porn industry with a legitimate uh, uh social security card and and birth certificate. Yeah, the only reason a bunch of people didn't go to prison for distributing underage porn was because she it was proven that she lied and how she did it. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah, so she did. So she started porn. She was sixteen. You know, did it for several years, and then uh, somebody saw her on a magazine and called the FBI. And then all of a sudden, like all these VHS tapes, is, like need to be gathered up because that's child pornography. Right. Uh, and uh, and then Tracy Lords goes on to become a, a, an an actor, and she's in music. So. She, yeah, she got actually, out of porn, as far as I know. <laughs> actually, became a real actor, not not a. Yeah, I only know her really from Blade. That's like her biggest role I know of. But yeah, yeah she's been in a bunch of other stuff too. Great movie, by the way. Yeah. Uh, so I found that like kind of fascinating that like uh, that paralleled and but like preceded it. So. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of. Uh... So there must have been like you know. If this is like the something they're picking on a lot, of, there's a lot of underage people in porn, but we just don't know about it. It's like that must have been a thing that happened, and then Tracy Lords was just kind of like the biggest thing that happened for that stuff. So yeah, well, that's this, even a conversation that the guy has, the porn baron guy has at the at the at the at the table is like like joking about like, oh no, we found out she's 16, <laughs> and we had to go destroy all the videos. Yep, yeah, that was a. Uh... Well, this was when porn was still seen as something like, I mean, it still is something seedy and there's a lot of criminal stuff in it, but it was yeah. almost like criminal to do it. Like you had to go to places like Florida and shoot porn or California and you're kind of doing it in seedy, you know, there were no, there were porn stars, 
but they weren't like they didn't have any mainstream crossovers. Just a bunch of truck drivers knew who all these people were, or whoever was <laughs> really into porn at that time. Yeah. So it was it was it was very much a seedy criminal thing. It still is, but not nearly what it was. Now everyone's on. Well, now everyone's streaming. So, yeah, literally. Um, and then the the then the 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 idea or the extra thing I had for NCIS New Orleans is. I'm not sure if the show is staying this, but that's just something I'm picking up on is that New Orleans is so unique that the only way it can be unique is to be surrounded by poverty and violence, Yeah, <laughs> which I think, I think vaguely that's something they're getting at, but that's just what I've noticed about just New Orleans productions in general is that's always the thing. It's like, you know, look at the soul of the city. It's, 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 it's so remarkable. No place, other places else is like this. It's like, yeah, but why is there so much poverty and violence? It's like, well, that's the engine that makes <laughs> makes the magic happen. Where do you think blues comes from? <laughs> no, well, one of the things I, I had on here, it was just like a question you would you would almost ask is, is like, is New Orleans a real place? Does it really exist? <laughs> it's like because you know we've got some place where there's this, you know, most of the East Coast was settled by the Dutch and the English, so it's kind of got that cultural heritage to it. Uh, Miami, uh, Florida was settled by the Spanish to a certain extent, and it was kind of close to that, but like Louis or New Orleans is like, that's a French place. I mean, they still have, like they, st- they still operate under Napoleonic-type codes and stuff down there, just as a tradition. But it's like, that's the only French place in America. Because the you know the closest you get to that something like that is like Montreal in Canada, but they actually speak French in parts of Canada. Yeah. Whereas down you know in America, maybe some people do. Or they have Creole or they have their own dialect, but nobody's like that's not mainstream. They're not shooting TV shows in that language. <laughs> so it's it's like yeah, it's I kind of wonder like what is it a real place? Is sometimes because you, you see that show and it's like oh there's all this cool culture and stuff. If everyone stops shooting each other, it, it might be a nice cool place. You know, it's awful hot. But uh, they have bars down there that have been open since the and never closed since like the 1800s. Like the first time they closed was like Katrina. That's because that they were underwater. Uh, there's bars down there you can drink 24 hours a day. They never close. Never. <laughs> no, 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 nothing like that. So it is. A, it's a unique place. But yeah, it makes you wonder. Like, is this a real place or is this an imagination place? You know. <laughs> Now, I don't have anything like extra special for the the mentalist. I kind of gave that way with the the like the vague sense of of apocalypse in the background. <laughs> I'm not yeah. sure if that's what the show's getting at, but that was just something I re- was reading into. Well, when we discuss our movie on our other podcast, American Greed Factory, we'll talk a little <laughs> more about uh, the Napa wine country and all the interesting stuff that went on to create uh, the the California we all love and know today. Um, <laughs> But yeah. yeah. So yeah, this has been the Verhoeven effect. Yeah, I did. I, I did all my kind of deep, weird analysis like live in the show. So I don't really have a lot to encapsulate because I just kind of did it all as we went along. But yeah, it's uh, uh, these are definitely uh, three shows that you can find stuff in. Um, you, you can find us. Well, right now you can get us on Spotify. If you go to anchor.fm slash Verhoeven effect, you can go to our page. You can uh, you can 
do listener support. If you want, if you want to hear more from us, uh, you can. There is a ninety-nine cent, four ninety-nine, and ninety-nine nine ninety-nine tier. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I want to call them tiers because you don't get anything extra for any of them. It's just listener support. So if you'd like to hear more from this, uh, support us, and we will make more. <laughs> and if you want something more extra- and faster. <laughs> And if you want something extra, I will gladly stare at you like a kind of a generic big brother in a screen, uh, you know, for an hour. No, I won't. I won't really do that. Don't ask me. I'm just kidding around. Uh, and also, you can go. You can get to the same page if you go to to www.verhoveneffect.com, and it'll link you to the same page. Um, if you don't know how to spell Verhoven, the the way I remember it is you go Verho, V-E-R-H-O, and then even. <laughs> Verho, even. <laughs> So I never forget how to spell it. So that's VerhovenEffect.com. Um, so yeah, that, that'll be it for this episode. I am Conlon. And I'm Nathan. Goodbye, America. Till I have a catchphrase for the show. All right. <laughs>